Genesis chapter 40 then. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we're in the story of Joseph. We are uh, kind of jumped right in last week with chapter 39, and we saw what happened when Joseph was sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife liked him a lot. She made some advances toward him. But remember, Joseph, unlike many other characters in the, in the book of Genesis, displayed his faithfulness to the Lord and his obedience to him. And so Joseph fled from temptation and ran, even though he knew it would cost him a lot. And it did. As we ended the chapter 39, um, it says in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then you go down and it says again in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. What we have found then is Joseph, because of his stand and faithfulness to the Lord, has ended up where? In jail. Now, oftentimes, we often believe that when we're faithful to the Lord, everything's just going to go great for us, right? And what it says here, ultimately, is that faithfulness does not necessarily deliver some abundance of riches. Sometimes it puts you in prison. But what matters the most in this is that it says, no matter where Joseph was, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, which becomes the key to the passage. No matter where he, where he is, what he's doing, the Lord is with him. And we mentioned last week how the psalmist does that very same thing. If I rise on the wings, the Lord is with me. If I plunder down into Sheol even, the Lord is with me. So the confidence of having the Lord with him is where we have it. God is showing favor to Joseph. He has risen to the top in Potiphar's house. Everything was okay in Potiphar's house. He'd risen to the top now in prison, and we're going to see what happens here while he's in prison. So chapter 40, it says, all this takes place. He's in prison. Everything's been put in his charge. Sometime after this, the cupbearer cup of the king of Egypt, that's the Pharaoh, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now remember... We talked about this a little bit last week. Remember that it said about Potiphar, whenever Joseph was in his house, everything was great, and the Potiphar only had to worry about what? What he ate, right? He only had to worry about what he ate. In some sense, that's also the idea that where is it that you could get to him if you wanted to do him harm the easiest in what you ate? And so there's that sense in which there was a freedom for Potiphar. You only had to worry about that. So when we begin chapter 40, we notice the same thing. The cupbearer brings the drinks to Pharaoh and the baker bakes the cakes, right? If somebody wanted to injure Pharaoh or hurt him, who could they go through very easily? The cupbearer or the baker, the food, the what he partakes. And so this happens in a sense that Pharaoh needed his cupbearer and his baker to be faithful and people he trusted. Something happened. We're not told what. One of them, the baker probably, you know, probably makes some chocolate. Nobody likes chocolate. And so his, something like that may have happened. The cake might have fallen or something. Or something made the Pharaoh believe that he can't trust him anymore with what he would eat. 
Same thing with the cupbearer. Something made Pharaoh believe that what he might bring to him to drink may not be the best thing for him to drink. So he lost trust in these two, such as he threw them in prison. So this great offense takes place. The Lord King of Egypt and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the baker, the two that had access to the food that the Pharaoh would eat. And he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now it keeps saying some time after this, they continued for sometime, if you will. So we're kind of moving the, the narrative along, if you will. This is not just happening overnight next day. Time is taking place here. And one night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, I love what verse 6 says. Again, we get a picture of the character and nature of Joseph. You see, someone who is committed to following the Lord and being obedient to him like Joseph was. And let's just think about that again. Joseph has had a struggle. His, his, he got a real nice coat from his dad. And I mean, everybody gets nice coats everything. But his brothers didn't like it, right? He, he, he had some dreams before. We've already had this issue with dreams where he had these dreams and that if he followed the interpretation through of what these dreams sounded like, his brothers was going to serve him. So now he's got a nice coat from his dad and he tells his brothers, y'all are all going to serve me. Somehow his brothers didn't take that too well. And his brothers decide to throw him into a pit, maybe even kill him, work some deals. Judah does his magic and sells him off. So he has been let go into uh, slavery by his brothers, abandoned by them, forsaken by them. They have turned their back. Then he goes into Potiphar's house. He rises to the top. And he has every reason to grab greed and gain for what he does. But he continually says, it's the Lord God whom I serve. And even when Potiphar's wife comes after him, he flees knowing it's going to cost him prison. Knowing that she had to say one word and he was gone in. He has been faithful even though everything has gone against him throughout this whole time. So he's continued to be faithful. We've seen that. But faithfulness is not just in the actions he does of fleeing temptation and sin. I want to point this out. We oftentimes look toward that. What I find in this next verse here is that we see faithfulness also, faithfulness also comes from a heart that is bent toward God. And a heart that is bent toward God is going to be what? Bent toward others, right? And so what does the Deuteronomy tell us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. Jesus says that's the law. What's the second half? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what you find here is that, yes, he's faithful in doing what God had called him to do. But now he turns and he sees the cupbearer of the king and the baker of the king. And they're in the prison. And what does he notice about them? They're sad. And he doesn't walk up to them and say, you big dummies, if y'all wouldn't have done something stupid, you wouldn't be in here, right? He walks up to them for encouragement. 
He's looking at them. They're sad. Something's wrong. And Joseph has genuinely, I believe, concerned for them. What is it? How can I help you? How do you feel? My point is the child of God who's been bought by the king, right, who has been redeemed and know that who we serve and there it is. He is now free to not worry about himself, even though he's in prison, but even concern himself about others. What God has called us to do through the salvation that we have received in Christ, through what we have received through Christ and how he has redeemed us, saved us, set us as his own, adopted us into his family, blessed us with all the riches of heaven, given all of those things to us, what he has done in that, in that action has freed us up to consider others greater than ourselves. That's why it comes in the very context of Philippians chapter 2 when he said, have the same mind in you that's in Christ Jesus who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, so that we can have life. Therefore, consider others greater than yourself. Christ has already considered you as needed. He has already thought of you and given you all you need. You don't have a worry or a fear. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. He says to them on the Sermon on the Mount, we had the Sermon on the Mound this last Sunday night, if y'all were here for this. But on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't worry. Y'all got that? As, I don't know if y'all ever heard, heard, heard that before, but the Bible tells us don't worry. Nobody in here has got a problem with worrying, I know. But the Bible says he takes care of the sparrow. He clothes the daffodil, the flowers in the field. How much more so is he going to care for you? Don't worry. Joseph is in prison. His brothers had forsaken him. He had lost it all. He had risen to power in Potiphar's house. He'd lost that. He's now in prison. All of these things. Yet, who was he concerned about? He was concerned about these two men who entered in. And I just want us to think about it for a second. Oftentimes, we too often consider ourselves before we consider others. And the Bible tells us to do the exact opposite. Why? Because Christ has taken care of us. We need not worry. We need not worry. Look outside because God is taking care of us. Now let's concern ourselves. And so here is Joseph coming to them in verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. He saw they were troubled. And he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are you troubled? He had no reason to care for them, but he wants to. He cares for them. What's wrong? How can I help? What can I do, Joseph says? Why are you troubled and downcast? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, first and foremost, these dreams that come up, what we find in this passage is that the emphasis is on the interpretation, not the dream itself. Does everybody get that? And what does Joseph say about the interpretation? That's God's business. And so Joseph is about to interpret these dreams from them, but off the bat, who is he giving the credit and glory to? God. 
He's about to do something that can help them, right? And so don't even think of it in the sense of just interpreting dreams. Think of how we help others who are hurting and who are downcast and who are, who are, who are needing some strength, who are needing something that they don't have. Got to provide for them, right? Who is it that well, whatever we're about to do, who gets the glory for it? Joseph makes sure from the start, God does this. How can I help you? This is God's business. How can I help you? What can I do for you? So whatever Joseph's going to say, he's letting them know this is from the Lord. God's work is to this interpretation. So the chief cupbearer told him his dream. That's verse 9. It really goes through uh, verse 15. In the chief cupbearer's dream, uh, there's a vine before me. The vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth. And the clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, this is it. This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. First of all, he gives them an interpretation. He says that interpretation comes from who? God. And what does Joseph have? Confidence. Here's what's going to happen. Boom, bam, bada bing. That's it. You're going to be fine. If you're going to do it, you're going to put it in your hand, you're going to be restored. Everything's going to be great. And when you do, call me and, and tell, or, or tell Pharaoh that who told you about it and, and reminded me. That's not, that's not Joseph looking for a tit for tat. You know, that's not him simply doing it. What Joseph is saying is, I've got confidence that this is what's about to happen. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. I remember uh, one of my great stories. Y'all, if you come into my, my office, I don't know, I got time. Dr. Moeller, y'all was here. He was here Sunday. He told a bunch of stories, so I got, well, I got one for you. <laughs> one of my, uh, if you come into my office, you look on the desk, there's a little thing that says tall white devil, right? And so uh, I tell you the story of that tall white devil plaque. And it's on my desk, so y'all, can, y'all, don't, y'all don't need to refer to me as that. I'll tell you the story about it. Um, I was, in, uh, uh, I was in a country in South Asia. We had gone into the mountains, the deepest, darkest parts. These people had not seen a white person, especially someone who was 6'5". You know, they've never seen that before. The average height's about 5'1", 5'2". There are tribal people that had come down. And so here I come in with a group of my friends. And all we're simply trying to do, these people had never heard the gospel. They had, didn't even know this name. All we were trying to do was give them some blankets. There was a, a, a village that was close that had some believers in it. We were trying to do some outreach into these places. Literally, you couldn't get a car there. You had to park at the bottom of the mountain and walk for about seven miles to get up this mountain. I did it. I did it, y'all. And so you get there. Now, one of the things I always say about the gospel, if Coke can get there, the gospel can get there. And you can't find a place in the world Coke hadn't found. So, so let's get there. And so you get into this place and this village had a witch doctor. Now, a witch doctor is from the village. That's what they refer to them. Usually what they do is ferment some fruits and some other things like that. And whenever somebody's got something that ail them, you know, it's like Aunt B with the guy who's coming through with the, with the bees. You give them a little bit of that alcohol, fermented fruit. Ah, this will make you feel better. They'll sleep for two days and somehow they get up and they're okay. That's how he operates. And so we come in and the witch doctor was opposed to us. 
He spit at us. He kicked at us. He kicked at dirt on us, all this stuff, telling us to get out the village. I walked up with a blanket, nice blanket, brand new, still had the tags on it. I wasn't giving them even a hand-me-down. And we walked up to this girl's porch, right? And I walked up to the girl's porch, and I just did like this. Universal sign for here, take this. And, and the guy who was with me interpreting just said, here's what we're doing. And the girl sweeping on the floor, didn't even look up. And in her language, she said, you get that tall white devil off my porch. <laughs> That's what she said. The guy that was with me from America heard, the guy said, he started laughing. The guy that was interpreting started laughing. I was like, what'd she say? And he said, nah, you don't need to know. No, nah, I need to know. What'd she say? She said, get the tall white devil off the porch. And I just looked at her like, you know. The guy with me in America, before I even, he, before, as soon as he got a phone signal, called his wife, make Josh something that says tall white devil and put it on his desk. <laughs> That's how that came about. We were leaving that village. They were not receptive. The witch doctor was yelling at us the whole time, right? He, was, he, he, he didn't want any part of us being there. We had a medical doctor, a pediatrician with us. We had some medicines. We were willing to help them if they wanted to. I mean, literally, y'all, we were in the middle of nowhere. And so, so we were willing to help them, but they didn't want anything from us. Get out. We don't want your gospel. We don't want this. So it was kind of shake the dust off your feet and let's go. We stepped outside of town, outside of the village, really, and... and uh, I said, all right, this is what's happened here. We kind of rallied up. We're going to pray. We were there for about an hour trying to make some inroads. Couldn't do it. We're going to pray, and, and we're going to leave. And so I prayed, and it wasn't any kind of imprecatory psalms or anything. I was real nice about it. And just Lord removed their blinders. All that. They're all standing around us watching us hold hands and pray. We're getting ready to leave. I say amen, and I look. And the witch doctor, I kid you not, that joker was quiet because he was staring me in the face. Somehow he got in our circle and was staring me in the face. And uh, he said to the interpreter, can he come to my house? What? My child is sick. Now, I found out what happened. The witch doctor had gone back bragging. We kicked them people out of our neighborhood. We got them out. They ain't going to come back again. And his wife said, you dummy. <laughs> Their child was sick. I'm talking about about an eight-month-old kid and had been crying for two or three straight days. And the wife found out we had medicines and she got mad at the witch doctor. And y'all know what the witch doctor did? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> All this was happening while we were praying. He said, would you come and look at my child? And I said, on one condition, I'll come look at your child. I get to speak to your village. He didn't like that. We walked up. The doctor was with us. He looked at it. It's a double ear infection. That's all it was. We already had the antibiotic drops. You brought two drops in it. Do two more in a little bit. It'll be better tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? That was in the providence of God that we had everything we needed to care for this child. And we got up there. The doctor said, it's a double ear infection. I'm going to drop these two drops. They're going to stop crying immediately. Tomorrow they do it again. It'll be gone. So I looked at that witch doctor and I said, here's what's going to happen. Your child, because of our God who's provided these medicines for him, your child is going to be well. And now you're going to sit down and let me speak. The, the whole village was perfect. It was like in the middle of it, all this beautiful place, carved out huts going up. And it was like an amphitheater. 
And before long, the whole village was there. And I'm going to tell you right there, I was not worried about a time limit on that sermon. Y'all know what I'm saying? I took my time and I went from start to finish. Genesis 1-1, and we already saw it took me a year and a half to get to chapter 40. I went and I took them all the way through it. You know what I'm saying? From creation to fall to recreation in Christ to the new heavens and new earth. I took them all the way through it. And I said, the only way to believe in these things and find this life that you're longing for is in Jesus, right? My confidence was this. We have been, God has already provided it. Just like Joseph said. The Lord gives the interpretation. I can say today, the Lord brings the healing, and I'm confident this is going to happen. And now here's what you're going to do, right? The confidence we have in the Lord gets expressed in what we even ask for in return. So Joseph has this confidence. I'll tell you how I finished that story. I preached it. I let it go, and I'm calling them. We've got some people from the village below that believe, and we're all right there. And I'm saying, has anybody who has heard of this want to trust in Jesus' day? Who knows if anybody ever gets back to this place? And this one old man, I might tear up talking about it. This one old man comes out, and say, I'm talking old man. Now, you go from 15 to 75 in three days over here in this place because it's a hard life. You know what I'm saying? And so they're working by the sweat of their brow and the muscle of their back just to eat every single day. And so this old man comes out and he says, I believe. That's all he said. The witch doctor makes a sprint across the whole amphitheater and just slaps him across the chest, knocks him to, his, knocks him to the ground. We get over there. I mean, I ain't having that. I don't try to get into people's squabbles. But you want to right, hold up. You know what I'm saying? We get over there and pull him up. This old man said, kid you not, I've been waiting for some hope my whole life, and today I found it. And he said then, they may kill me for it. That was all he ever said. We heard that we connected him with him. He went into his hut and shut the door. My point is, there's a confidence we have in what God can do that we need to rest in that confidence and not shy away from it, right? And that confidence we have, Joseph says, here it is. This is the interpretation. God gives it. And so when we know what we're doing is God provided for us, we can work and operate with a confidence. Yes, your child's going to be healed tomorrow because God, our God, the one true and living God has provided this healing. So I got a confidence that in that, now I can stand up and proclaim this, knowing that what happened over here is going to testify to what I say in the one true and living God and what he can accomplish, right? Joseph knows the same thing. We have confidence in this. So I tell you what, here's your interpretation. Three days, you're going to get the cup, you're going to give it to him, he's going to drink it, he's going to establish you, remember me. Remember me, because it's going to happen that way. Now, what happened was the baker is on the other side going, hmm, that worked out for him, right? That's a good interpretation. He even says it. He says, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, oh, oh, I had a dream. Tell me about mine. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered him. He should have known. That sounds crazy. Joseph answered him and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh. (laughs) 
didn't quite go so well for the, but the baker did it. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among the servants. So that idea of lifting up the head does not necessarily mean uh, bad. It could mean either good or bad. So as he tells a story, it kind of sets it up. He lifts up the head and then it says, he restored the chief cupbearer, cup just like he said he would, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So, that's the story of chapter 40. A couple things I want to say about it. One, let me just note here the historicity of the scriptures themselves. These dreams are very much Egyptian, right? I mean, they're very much Egyptian. It would be hard for someone raised in Jewish life to kind of know how this operates and works as we're heading into Egypt. But guess who wrote this book? Y'all remember? Moses wrote it. Jesus said so. Moses wrote this. And where was Moses raised up? He was well familiar with the Egypt stories and how they lay out. So this is pretty, pretty easy for him. He knows how this works. He knows how these stories are. Not only that, there was a whole, uh, a whole group of people tried to disprove the Bible saying Egyptians never celebrated birthdays, which that's kind of sad, right? So they say Egyptians, that was, the, that was the Assyrians that celebrated birthdays, not the Egyptians. Egyptians never celebrated birthdays. But then they found this little thing called the Rosetta Stone. Y'all know what that is? The Rosetta Stone on it had an inscription that said on the occasion of the birthday of Pharaoh, which testified that the birthday was a big deal even in Egypt, went against what they had already thought of in archaeology. In other words, when you put the Bible up against time and history, and when we find out truth, it wins every time. Y'all know what I'm saying? I'm not scared of archaeology. I'm not scared of diving into ancient Near Eastern literature. I'm not scared of any of that because every single time it only proves the Bible more and more. The story helps to do that in the historicity of it. But at the end, you see God gives Joseph the interpretations and he delivers because he, one, cared for those who were hurting. He went to them that were hurting. And two, he used what God had given them for their benefit. Even if he's got to tell them the bad news. I liked it because Joseph didn't eat. Uh, here's your interpretation. God, he's going to hang you and birds are going to eat you. Is that cool? But even in this difficulty, he told them exactly what was true. Even when it was difficult to hear. The good news and the bad news, he gave them that. At the end it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So two more years go back. This all happened two years later, right? So now we get a more exact time. He dreamed, Pharaoh dreams, he's standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. He sent and called for a magician, uh, yeah, magicians of Egypt, and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. None. One of the reasons they would not, not only did they not want to interpret it, they didn't know what they meant, obviously. But secondly, if they interpreted it and it was wrong, Pharaoh would kill them. So they were scared of putting themselves out there in this interpretation. So Pharaoh has at his hands the all of Egypt. Whatever he wants, he can get. He can call on, he's got all the wealth of Egypt. You've got to understand, the Pharaoh was not just one who held the treasury of the king. The Pharaoh was in charge of the entire country, right? And so all the wealth of Egypt, all the magicians, all the leaders, all of the, the priests of their gods were there and he had them at his disposal and no one can help him. A sign that those things in the end cannot help us either, right? All the wealth you can imagine, all of the, the power you can have, all of the access to leadership and high profile and all these other people, you still can't find what you're looking for. Pharaoh couldn't find it in all those things. Here's a guy who has whatever he wants and he couldn't find it there. He couldn't find it in anything there. And so Pharaoh's looking for some help. Now, then, verse 9, having heard all of this with Pharaoh, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I what? I remember. Two years later, after his dream had been interpreted by Joseph, after Joseph had interpreted his dream, two years later, right, he was forgotten, and now dreams needed, nothing in Egypt can help him, and the cupbearer goes, hey, there was this dude in prison one time. I remember somebody could do this. My point is, I want to stop there for a second. The cupbearer is going to remind, uh, bring to his memory what happened with Joseph. Verse 12, a young Hebrew there with us, a servant of the captain, he interpreted the dreams and they were both true, right? There's a certain thing here. We oftentimes think that things have been forgotten, you know? Or we oftentimes think things aren't working out in our favor. What I want to suggest is that Maybe the cupbearer forgot was not just simply happenstance or chance. What I mean is, in the providence of God, the cupbearer remembered at just the right time. Does that make sense to everybody? You know, what I'm saying is, if the cupbearer would have gone to Pharaoh and said, Hey, Pharaoh, let me tell you, there was this guy in prison who interpreted my dream and he interpreted the baker's dream and it was just like this. At that time, what would Pharaoh probably said? Cool. Don't ever talk to me again. You're the cupbearer. I'm the king. He didn't need anything. He wasn't concerned about anything. He didn't need any help from anybody. It would have been a piece of information that wouldn't have mattered to him. 
But at just the right time, at the moment the Pharaoh needed some help and nobody in Egypt can help him and none of his power could get him what he needed and nothing was there, at just the right time, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And at that point, Joseph became valuable to the king. In other words, what's happening here is not chance or happenstance. What we need to recognize, like we see in the book of Ruth, God is in control of all things, even sometimes our memory. I don't know about y'all, but when I lose something, what do I pray? Lord, where did I put it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? We know God can do this. We don't want to believe in a God that can't do it. It can help, can't help us. In fact, this is what it means here. In the idea of providence, what we know is, is that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining their properties with which he created them. Everything that's happening is happening because God has created it to work and operate and happen this way. And he did not just spin the earth and disappear back to heaven. He is intricately involved in every detail of life. But not only that, not only that, he makes sure that as in providence, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to Calls them to act as they do. And not only that, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. Ultimately, that's what we mean when we talk about providence. Now, does that exempt anybody from, from any, any kind of uh, judgment on their part or guilt on their part for what they do? No, it does not. In fact, the scripture says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? And what we've seen throughout this is God even takes the evil actions of people and their sinful actions and brings them about for his purposes. So what that means is when Jesus hung on a cross, God did not sit in heaven and wipe his brow and go, shoo, I'm glad that worked out. He was in control of every action, of every step, and every movement. He's in control in such a way that those who sin are guilty of their own sin, and all glory of good goes to God. He's in control of all of these things. It says this in the scriptures plainly. He controls our steps. He knows our words. He knows our thoughts. He does all of these things and brings it about for his good and for his glory. He made a lot of predictions about the cross. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They won't break any bones. That he'll hang up there and, and they'll give him some sour wine. He made a lot. I mean, that's just a couple of them. They'll have his garment and there won't be a seam in it so they can't tear it. So they'll cast lots for it. All of that was predicted 800 years before it even happened. And so he's not up on the throne going, you know what? I think that joker's about to break his bones. I hope he doesn't. I hope it doesn't happen. You know what I'm saying? I hope it doesn't fall. I hope they don't tear his garments. I hope they do cast. He's not hoping this happens and wiping his brow when it, when it comes to light. Like, it's, like he made this prediction and now he's not in control of it. God does this in such a way so that he works with what our human decisions are and his glory and will to bring about his purposes ultimately and finally. So what we can say in everything, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And when we say good luck, we don't really believe that. I had a buddy who always, anytime somebody said, hey man, good luck. My buddy, he was dead set on this. And he was, it was almost to the point where it was kind of rude and embarrassing. But every single time somebody said good luck to him, he says, I don't believe in luck, but I know what you mean. That's what he said every time. 
Don't believe in it, but I know what you mean. Well, in reality, we don't either. There's no such thing as happenstance or chance. Everything's working out for purpose and for the purpose of bringing about the glory of God. And so the cupbearer didn't just, he forgot, but at the just the right time, not by happenstance or chance, he remembered. God's providence is in control. When Pharaoh needed help the most, he said, hey, there was this dude in prison that told me about my dream. And what we can know and trust, and the older I get for getting glasses and needing glasses, the older I get, the more thankful I am that I can trust the Lord with my life and my purposes, right? And so he's in control. And so the older I get, the more I realize how little control I have. And here we see it. I remember. Your life has not been happenstance or chance. You didn't stumble into church one day to hear the gospel. The Lord worked your steps to get you there. You didn't just happen into this, right? Me, I didn't just happen to be born into a family that already knew the gospel and believed it. The Lord placed me there. I didn't choose my parents. God did. Does that make sense to everybody? He placed me there. Those things were not happenstance. Those conversations were not that. That was God working everything out for my good to bring me to salvation and life for his glory. That's not happenstance. That's not chance. That is his good. That is his purposes. And Joseph, even though he's in prison, everything's working to the plan. And here he comes. And at just the right time, the cupbearer remembers. I got this guy. Pharaoh says, go get him. If he had remembered before in favor of him, I said, that's cool, whatever. Now he says, go get him. And he goes and he gets him and he brings him. I have a dream. He tells Joseph the dream. And what's the first thing Joseph says in verse 16? It's not in me, but God will give you an answer. Isn't that something? You've looked at your God, Ray, your son, God, the God of the Nile. You've looked at him. In, in a couple hundred years, the Lord is going to totally dismantle the gods of Egypt. They're called the plagues. But here, he's saying, you've looked at all your gods. Now, my God, my God will give you the answer. So he tells him, Pharaoh said the dream, told him all that happened, puts it out there. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh that what he is about to do. So in other words, he says, this is God's work. Here's what God is about to do. He gives God the glory for the interpretation, and he lets Pharaoh know, Pharaoh, this isn't in your control. This is God who does this. This is God who does this. Joseph never loses sight of who is in control and who he's dependent upon. The seven good cows are seven good years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. As It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. What he's about to do. What God is about to do. And there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after then, there were seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be severe, very severe. 
And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years and the coming uh, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph makes it clear. God is in control. My God is ruling and reigning. He's in control. He's going to overrule your ruling, Pharaoh. Whatever you think is going to happen, my God's in control. Secondly, Joseph takes advantage of the opportunity. He interprets the dream, but he doesn't just interpret it. He tells him what? Here's what you should do. Here's your plan. Here's how this can work. Joseph takes advantage of the opportunity to, in this position, so that he can show Pharaoh, here's how you can overcome these seven lean years of famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? What happens whenever we live for Christ when we live for the Lord faithfully, what happens? Other people notice. When our testimony is of God, when our actions are of God, I promise you it's not going to slide under the radar and be an undercover Christian. People will notice. And even the Pharaoh says, this guy, this guy's got, got his Lord behind him. Can we find anybody else like that? The answer, of course, is no. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, Pharaoh's a good leader at this point. One of my, my first church I was in, I kept having this lady come up with me with ideas. And so the easy way to answer that was, that is great. Why don't you do it? She never wanted to do it, and so she stopped coming to me with ideas. So Pharaoh, as a good leader, says, hey, you came up with it. That's great. Now you run it. You take it. You do this. In the providence of God, we know what's going to happen. Joseph is going to go. He's going to take it. He's going to become the number two in the land. He's going to protect and provide all of Egypt and save it. And what's going to happen in Egypt? All the nations are going to come to Egypt during the famine because it's in Egypt, the only place that food is, right? And what nation is going to hear about this? Jacob and his sons. And so through the famine, God is going to provide a way to deliver his people. And he's going to provide a way to deliver his people that started way back when Jacob gave Joseph a fancy robe. That started way back whenever Joseph had a dream that his brothers will bow to him. That went on through whenever Joseph was sold into slavery. Whenever he went into Potiphar's vice and he's made that stand. Whenever he went into jail and he was faithful there to do what God had called him to do and to see the hurt of other people and step into their lives. And it went all the way to when he got called up to Pharaoh and he was on point. And if he would have failed at any one of those spots, the people of God would not have survived the flood, the famine. His faithfulness is seen throughout, and God uses it to bring about his people through a terrible famine. Ultimately, we see how God is working all of this out. 
This proposal pleased it. Pharaoh took all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his, his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments with fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in the second chariot. That's something. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name something, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, put the food in the cities. He put in every city food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. The Lord had provided, Joseph had cared. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Now remember how delicate it was for Joseph to uh, for before this, for them to find wives that were from their people. Now Joseph has a wife who's not. But even in the midst of that, God can redeem it, right? Joseph has a wife who's not, not on his own fault. He's the one who was sold into slavery and sent out. He's received this wife from Pharaoh. But notice what Joseph does. If you remember correctly, whenever Esau had a wife that was not from the land, Whenever the others had wives that were not from the land, they named their children after the land that they were with. Esau named his children Hittite names, and, which means he's passing on their inheritance through the Hittite people, right? But not Joseph. Joseph had children, and he names them, he names them after his people. Joseph has these children. God has made, he names the first one Manasseh. For God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. That idea of godly, faithful, forgetting. Forgetting the, the negative things. Forgetting what happens. Putting that behind him and moving forward. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So God has faithfully brought him to so that he can forget all that has happened. God is with him. And God has made him fruitful in his eyes. So Joseph, even though he has to marry one from another country, not from his people, he's faithful in that marriage to bring his children up in the understanding of the Lord. Even in the names, we recognize that. Seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. Seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph has said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to, do, to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses, sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. In this, we already get a glimpse even of our Savior who is going to provide in a foreign land. He's going to go in in the greatest famine there is, the famine of sin and death, and he is going to provide bread, right? He's going to provide bread for his people. And all the earth will come to him and find it and find it. 
We find that ultimately in Christ Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. May we be faithful as Joseph is faithful, and may we give you all the glory for all that happens in our life. God, thank you. Thank you for all these truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We thank you all. We'll see you Sunday. Graduation Sunday this week. We'll see you then.